You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 25th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippi. Coming up on today's programme... I want to make sure that I protect Northern Ireland's place in the United Kingdom. It's clear that the operation of the protocol, as it's currently being enacted, is putting that position at risk. The UK's latest Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, gets to work on a multitude of problems. But does Northern Ireland represent his greatest challenge? Also ahead, Monocle 24's Fernando Augusto Pacheco will be here with the very latest on the final round of Brazil's presidential contest. Fernando. Hello, Marcus. On Sunday, Brazilians are voting for a new president and acts of violence are ramping it up. We'll discuss it, how this could change the outcome of the election. Much more from Fernando shortly. Plus the papers from Zurich, the business from Bloomberg and Nick Muniz will join us live from the Orgatec Fair in Cologne. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. One of the greatest challenges facing the UK's new Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is what to do about Northern Ireland. Stormont has been gripped by a political crisis since the Democratic Unionist Party refused to share power with Sinn Féin in May. At the heart of it all is the DUP's rejection of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is a trading arrangement that was negotiated during Brexit talks. The upshot of it all is that Northern Ireland faces the prospects of fresh elections if a deal cannot be reached between the DUP and Sinn Féin by the end of the week. Baroness Margaret Ritchie was the leader of Northern Ireland's SDLP between 2010 and 2011 and an MP for South Down. She now sits as a Labour peer in the House of Lords. Baroness Ritchie, welcome to the programme. Could you first explain how grave is the challenge facing Rishi Sunak as a new Prime Minister? Well, the new Prime Minister is probably not new to all of this, having been a former chancellor and having been in the House of Commons for several years. But notwithstanding that, he championed Brexit, which is the root cause of all these problems, including the current political instabilities in Northern Ireland, an issue uh, that is used by the DUP to try to unravel the Good Friday Agreement and also um, to prevent the protocol from working properly. I fully admit there is a need for mitigations to the protocol, but that is the role of intensive UK-EU negotiations. And I would like to see those negotiations under the new Prime Minister, um, Rishi Sunak, to move to a higher political level from the technical level where they currently reside. So what would that mean in practice? What are the first things you think Rishi Sunak should do in this situation? Well, Rishi Sunak has quite a large drawer of work to address, including high rates of inflation, low growth, high levels of debt, but also the ever-present problem of Brexit, which is the root cause of all these things, combined with war in Ukraine and the pandemic. But the most important thing for me is ensuring that the protocol and the Good Friday Agreement work for the people of Northern Ireland. The majority of uh, members of the Assembly 
support the protocol with mitigations and and they also want to see the restoration of those political institutions the threat of an election looms large and all that Rishi Sunak needs to do is to ensure that the new Secretary of State brings forward amending legislation that allows, shall we say, negotiations to to begin between both British and Irish governments and the political parties in Northern Ireland to get these institutions up and running and then have um, institutions within a few weeks. And I would like to see him in direct negotiations with von der Leyen and Marcus Sefcovic to ensure that there is a proper negotiated outcome to the protocol, which is already working well for um, the dairy industry, for our cross-border north-south economy. There are areas where mitigations are required, like the haulage industry, but it is negotiations that resolve those, not unilateral action through the protocol bill, which we give a first day of committee stage today. What are your thoughts about how well or how the United Kingdom has been dealing with Brussels in the last year or two? And the United Kingdom government hasn't dealt very well with Brussels. It has taken unilateral actions in relation of, uh, to grace periods and in relation particularly to the protocol bill, which seeks to remove provisions from the purview of the protocol. And it, the actual bill itself is a breach of international law, a breach of the law of the legislation, and a breach of an agreement that the UK negotiated with the EU. It's, this uh, legislation will also take powers onto ministers, a fact that has been ha- heavily criticised by the House of Lords Constitution Committee and the Delegated Powers Committee. This sweep, these sweeping Henry VIII powers will usher in regulations over which there will be little parliamentary scrutiny or accountability. And then the UK government has the audacity to expect the EU to comply. For this to take place in a harmonious environment, there needs to be renewed vigour given to these negotiations, renewed political vigour to these negotiations. And it is up to Rishi Sunak working with the EU to ensure that that happens. Do you think there has been enough discussion within the United Kingdom about what Brexit has done to us? Do you think the impact has been discussed and accepted? Well, if I look at the Northern Ireland context, there has been little uh, communication with the businesses in Northern Ireland. There's been little or no communication with the community and voluntary sector. And because we don't have an assembly and an executive and the, all of the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement up and running, there's been little or no negotiation or discussion with the parties in Northern Ireland. Always remember that this protocol bill is simply a SOP to the DUP. It is not about trying to resolve difficulties. I think the British government has ignored the fact that Northern Ireland is a delicate political instrument and it requires um, the negotiations and the support and the bipartisan approach of both the UK and the Irish government, along working with the EU 
and obviously the American administration, which helped to bring about the Good Friday Agreement. And we need to revert to that. And very sadly, the people of Northern Ireland have become, shall we say, the sacrificial lambs in all of this. I'm also a member of the Protocol Committee in the House of Lords. And last week, uh, we took two days to visit Northern Ireland. So I went home to do work. And on Thursday, we visited Newry, which is on the border on the Belfast-Dublin corridor and has made wonderful progress in terms of underpinning its economy. And we met manufacturing, we met business from the agri-food sector, and we met representatives from the Newry Mourn Enterprise Agency and Newry and Chamber. And all of them find the protocol with medications is working very well for them and it's underpinning their economy and increasing north-south trade, which was one of the purposes of Intertrade Ireland, which is one of the north-south bodies, which was established through the Good Friday Agreement and is one of the implementation bodies of the North-South Ministerial Council. In Belfast, we met representatives of the political parties and also from the manufacturing and haulage industry, who definitely have issues with um, all the intense form filling. But that form filling could be dealt with in the negotiations, and I hope it is being dealt with. And I am pleased that those negotiations, albeit at a technical level, have resumed. They should never have been suspended in February. They should have continued so that we would not have been in this situation of abyss. But I have great hopes for the economy of Northern Ireland, utilising the protocol, and I hope the British government will see sense and allow the protocol to continue and enable the institutions of government to be up and running. How optimistic are you feeling at the moment? I am fairly optimistic, but there's always the, the downsides. All, and all the evidence that we received in Northern Ireland, and we were told that the community and voluntary sector and the young people, they weren't concerned about the protocol. Their principal concern was the cost of living, the cost of doing business and the energy crisis. And they wanted those issues resolved. So I think that um, the prime minister, the new prime minister, has a lot of issues to address. He needs to address those. He needs to have an immediate meeting with the Antishop, Michael Martin in Dublin, and to address the issues that, um, shall we say, align with the protocol and uh, Ireland um, and Britain relations, because they need to be underpinned as well. And he needs immediate negotiations with the EU to resolve the outstanding issues in relation to the protocol. Thank you very much for your insights, Margaret. That was Baroness Margaret Ritchie. And now here is Monica Scarlett-Rabello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. The UN Nuclear's watchdog will send a team of inspectors to Ukraine following a request from the government in Kyiv. It's understood that inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency will examine sites for signs of undeclared nuclear activities. 
It's been revealed that senior members of Vietnam's ruling Communist Party will visit Beijing next week on the invitation of China's political leadership. China is Vietnam's largest trading partner. However, the details of the visit have not been disclosed. And U.S. space agency NASA has announced that it has created a special panel to study UFO sightings. The 16-member group, which includes experts from diverse scientific fields, will focus its inquiry exclusively on unclassified sightings. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Carlotta. Brazil's leftist leader, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, and the country's far-right incumbent, Jair Bolsonaro, are starting to make their final pitches to voters ahead of Sunday's presidential election runoff. Lula leads opinion polls by a narrowing margin, with the contest expected to go to the wire. Monocle 24 senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco has been covering all the twists and turns of the election for us, and he joins me now in the studio. Good afternoon, Fernando. Good afternoon, Marcus. Good to be here. Now, quite a twist. Just a couple of days ago, let's talk about that first. Jair Bolsonaro's ally, Roberto Jefferson, was arrested for using grenades and a rifle to attack police officers. Can you try to explain that to us? Absolutely. That was a crazy incident that perhaps could change uh, the outcome of the election. So, first things uh, first, Roberto Jefferson is a former congressman since the 80s, so he's a well-known kind of figure in Brazilian politics. And he's being a strong supporter of Bolsonaro. Uh, So the police uh, went to his house. And by the way, I have to mention, he was already under house arrest uh, for trying to threaten some uh, Brazilian institutions, mainly the Supreme Federal Court. So he's been under house arrest since January this year, uh, I believe. So the police went again to his house because he said more threatening words to a specific Supreme Federal Court judge, calling her all sorts of words that perhaps I'm not going to mention here, uh, Marcus. So basically, he resisted the attack, but really resisted. I mean, he attacked the police with rifle, grenades. Uh, He hurt two police officers. So it was a kind of a a completely shambolic event. Uh, And and at the beginning, it's interesting that uh, some of Bolsonaro camps, they were kind of minimizing that in a way. Uh, But now that Bolsonaro realized that probably a lot of people in Brazil are shocked with that. So he's trying to distance himself from Roberto Jefferson. He even said, you wouldn't find a picture of me and Roberto Jefferson. I mean, clearly that's a lie. There's been uh, perhaps a a dozen pictures uh, with him and and Roberto together. Now, what do you think? How will this incident affect Bolsonaro's chances for a re-election? I mean, it is a bit hard to say because I have to say, Marcos, it's been an incredibly toxic campaign with all sorts of kind of attacks from Satanism to pedophilia. I mean, I never seen an election like this. So I kind of would presume that uh, such an event would uh, take some votes off Bolsonaro, but I can't say for certain. But one thing I'll tell you, he would not gain any votes, and he needs to gain votes. Even though he did better than expected in the first round, I mean, he was still behind Lula, right, for about five points uh, in the polls. So I think a lot of people would say, oh my God, this is uh, this is quite big. And, 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 you know, and, and, and the initial reaction of Bolsonaro was a bit scary, even though, as I said, he's trying to distance himself from Roberto Jefferson. He already said that he's a crook. I mean, that's been a very kind of uh, quick twist of what he used to think of, of, of the former congressman. So the latest polls still show Lula in the lead, although a narrow one. What do you think is going to be happening in the next 
few days of this campaign? Since at the end of the first round, the polls have been very stable. Uh, you know, this narrow lead for Lula. Uh, of course, there'll be heavy campaign in the streets, especially in the southeast region, which is the most populous. And that's a region where especially Lula needs to gain some votes as well. And don't forget, we still have the final debate uh, on Friday evening. I'm not saying the debate can change the outcome of the election like he used to, uh, especially in the, uh, in the election of 89, where Lula, Lula lost because he didn't do very very well at the debate. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see both of them uh, coming out together at, at, at the global TV debate as well. Fernando, as you mentioned already, this has been an incredible, incredibly toxic couple of months in Brazil, or even longer than that. When we finally see someone becoming the next president, do you think there's any chance that Brazil would be any more united than it is now? Unfortunately not. I think whoever wins, it's an extremely divided country. It's, it, 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 you know, some people are even extremist uh, in a way. So even if Lula wins, and I do think he's trying to be more of a moderate, he already said that if he wins, it's not going to be a workers' party government. It's going to be a government for all. And he's trying to get people that he will never uh, be photographed together from other center-right parties. But it's going to be hard. I mean, the Congress, there's still a lot of Bolsonaro members there. The Senate uh, had a lot of gains for Bolsonaro. So even with a Lula victory, the country will be divided. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be Lula 2002 mm-hmm. when he won his, his first election. Well, Fernando, just finally, when you when you compare what's happening in the UK and in Brazil, when you follow what's happening in Brazil, does that make you feel like things are quite fine in the United Kingdom after all? Well, in different ways. I think they're both different countries, of course, with different set of problems, but they've been going through very tough times, I have to say, in their own ways. Of course, looking here at Roberto Jefferson throwing grenades at police officers, I would say that perhaps Brazil has the lead when it comes to, you know, symbolic events. Uh, but for, for the UK standards, I mean, it's been quite a rough few weeks as well, Marcus. Fernando, thank you very much for joining me today. That was our senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and you are with The Briefing. We're going to take a closer look at the day's papers now with journalist and broadcaster Juliet Lindley. Juliet joins us from our headquarters in Zurich. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Marcus. Looking at today's papers, I understand you've been looking at what the French press is covering today, something from Le Monde. Absolutely. The paper's Rome correspondent has filed quite a detailed piece, Marcus, on Emmanuel Macron's only confirmed last minute, very much kept under wraps meeting with Italy's new premier, Giorgia Meloni, Entretien en Catimini, as they put it. Uh, it was the first meeting with a European leader for Meloni, who'd only just been sworn into office shortly before. And it's, it's notable because the two leaders are pretty much chalk and cheese in terms of their political positions. Uh, liberal, pro-European Macron has long been particularly reserved about post-fascist Meloni, often emphasizing the need to respect the tiny people's sovereignty in her regard and his closeness to former Prime Minister Draghi, as you as you well remember, that was no secret. But as analysts have put it, Macron cannot underestimate the figure of Meloni, given Marie Le Pen's hefty popularity in his country. So the two met in Rome Sunday night, the day before Macron met the Pope at the Vatican, for what was initially touted as just a quick coffee with no official protocol, but apparently ended up turning into a far longer meeting, with Macron quoted as saying, relations between France and Italy are, quote, 
quote, more important than relations between the two leaders. Now, the Elysee's hesitant tone contrasts sharply with that of Meloni's entourage, which is quoted very much in the Italian press, saying that there was clear convergence of views on key European dossiers, including the energy crisis, defence, economic matters, migration and support for Ukraine. But, um, but Marcus, analysts are saying Macron has every interest in fostering good relations with the new Italian government, given the tense state of affairs with German Chancellor uh, Olaf Scholz. And of course, Meloni has every interest in not beating the anti-European drum too much with Macron and with Europe in general, since she desperately needs the 140 billion euro um, package from the European recovery plan that still needs to be dispersed. It's definitely interesting to see how those relations are going to evolve. Let's continue now with a story you've spotted from the New York Times, a very interesting one about Taiwan's charm offensive. Yeah, it's on the front cover of today's New York Times to counter China, Taiwan banks on its charm. And so so we're looking at how Taipei is working creatively to bolster its global alliances as China's threat on reunification grows more pointed. So, so Marcus, let's remember that only a handful of nations officially recognized Taiwan as being the Republic of China. And Xi Jinping just a few days ago called unification with Taiwan a natural requirement and stressed Beijing um, n- reserving the right to use all measures necessary. So Taiwan's foreign ministry is in overdrive in terms of international diplomacy. And this article, interesting, looks at Lithuania as a case study and says, you know, it's uh, last year, Lithuania attracted Beijing's wrath after rejecting a popular Chinese cell phone that included a censorship registry of 450 terms banned by the Chinese government. Beijing therefore made it nearly impossible for many Lithuanian companies to sell their wares in China and so Taiwan hustled in, opening a de facto embassy last November and soon after announced it was setting up a $200 million fund to invest in Lithuania plus a $1 billion program to finance joint projects and ever since, Marcus, Taiwan's leadership has been rallying around Lithuania even on social media, as its three million citizens were sort of as if they were K-pop stars, is how the article puts it. Well, let's continue. Obviously, Taiwan is concerned about about the future, but you've got something something a bit more optimistic, maybe from today's Tiger Sunzike. What is the Swiss press covering today? Yes, it's on Swiss news via Cambodia. So a film about an incredible man, Marcus, who was both a pediatrician and a gifted musician, who used both of those talents over the years to treat some 20 million sick children in Cambodia for free uh, throughout the country. Now, this is Beat Richner, better known as Beato Cello. He was a doctor for the Swiss Red Cross and he had to escape uh, Cambodia in 75 when the Khmer Rouge invaded and he then went on, he returned to Switzerland but then went back in 1991 and was raising funds for hospitals in Cambodia and one of the ways he raised funds was by playing cello concerts mm. and um, and now a film is being released here at Zurich's Kunsthaus Markus and it's called Who Was Beat Richner? Amazing. Um, and indeed, as, as this article mentioned, up to three and a half thousand children are treated in those hospitals every day. Judith Lindy in Switzerland, in Zurich, thank you very much for joining us today. It's time to continue with the day's latest business headlines. I'm joined by Bloomberg's Ewan Pott. Pott, good afternoon to you, Ewan. 
guess. Shall we look at what's been happening in the UK and what the reaction has been to the UK getting a new Prime Minister? Yeah, another new Prime Minister for the UK. Rishi Sunak uh, step, stepping outside 10 Downing Street to give his uh, first speech just seven weeks after his predecessor Liz Truss did the same. He's vowing to fix the mistakes made by his predecessor. He says that right now the country is facing a profound economic crisis and that it will mean difficult decisions to come. The uh, markets are pretty clear that they are pleased that uh, some of the confusion of the last uh, seven weeks is over. Over the last uh, week, UK bonds have posted some of their biggest gains on record. Uh, the pound currently trading just start up a little bit today at 1.13 against the dollar. You remember in the wake of that disastrous mini budget, the pound crashed to a record low against the dollar of 103. Now that uh, market meltdown uh, pushed yields on government borrowing to the highest level in years. That has been uh, unwinding over the course of this week. One analyst told us that uh, for now it's a relief that total chaos is over. Uh, still, I think the UK not uh, out of the woods when it comes to the difficult uh, economic situation. Like a lot of uh, the world, it is facing a big inflation problem and like the rest of Europe facing an energy crisis. Though I should say that energy prices have dropped a huge amount since all so there is some relief, I think, on the way when it comes to, to energy prices. Attention now, I think, turns uh, from investors to uh, who uh, leads the finance ministry. Uh, Jeremy Hunt is expected to remain in place as chancellor, and there are going to be some very tough economic decisions to be made. The government's fiscal situation, its borrowing situation, is pretty bleak. The UK government is very overspent, and there is not a lot of money to go around. So some tough choices uh, to be made for Rishi Sunak. Let's continue with news about... Adidas, there's been a hit to the company's profits from the end of a successful partnership. Tell us more about that. Yeah, it's been a really uh, useful partnership for Adidas. The German sportswear maker has been uh, underperforming Nike for a number of years now. Its partnership with the rapper formerly known as Kanye West, uh, Yee, has been brought to an end. Now, there's been talk about this for a number of weeks. A lot of controversial comments uh, from Kanye West uh, on Twitter. A lot of uh, things he's been accused of anti-Semitism. And Adidas has had to make a difficult decision to end the partnership. There's been a lot of pressure on them to do so. The problem, of course, it, it has been a very profitable partnership for them. Uh, analysts uh, think the hit to them will be as much as 250 million euros. Uh, some forecasts suggest that it had accounted for as much as 8% of uh, total sales. This is the Yeezy line. Uh, it's been really useful for Adidas brand. But uh, after other companies, including Gap and Kering, uh, pulled out, uh, really uh, the pressure on Adidas just mounted and they had to make that decision. Adidas shares currently trading down 4% today. Thank you very much for this update, you And that was Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. And you are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. It is 2027 in Tokyo, 1227 here in London and 727 a.m. in Washington, D.C. Finally, on today's edition of The Briefing, we head to Orgatech, which is billed as the leading international trade fair for the modern working world. It's taking place in Cologne and Monaco's designer is Nick Monis is there for us. Nick, good afternoon to you. Hello, Marcus. How are you? Good, thank you. Can you tell us what you have seen so far today? 
Oh, it's been so. I was one of the first ones through the doors. Uh, maybe a little bit too eager, but it was it, it was really nice to actually have the trade fair to myself for a little bit um, in in uh, you know sprawl, uh, sprawling trade fair sort of campus with with lots of huge halls filled with uh, plenty of, of of furniture brands from across the, across the the globe. Uh, you know, showing their wares. So I have stopped in at several. Who have we got? We've got FD, FDB Mobler, a, a Danish brand who have uh, basically taken some of their more traditional, uh, you know, domestic sort of in, environment pieces and, and made them uh, appropriate for an office. That, that's meeting all the sort of standard fire safety requirements that you have when you, when you move into these contract spaces. Um, and Katal as well, who were sensational and they've, They've essentially created these little pods which you can retrofit into buildings, uh, which maybe doesn't necessarily sound uh, that exciting, but I think from a, from a sustainability perspective, uh, you know, finding ways to turn old factories into usable offices quickly and, and affordably is, is really impressive. Uh, and their, their, their work does look really, really nice. So they're, they're sort of two of the big highlights or standouts for me. Sounds, sounds really good. Obviously, there's an obvious reason for why Orgatech hasn't taken place for four years and now it's finally time for people and companies to come together. What have been the major themes this time around? I mean, there's obviously, uh, we're seeing, I guess, two sort of things. There, there, are, there are, I guess, brands looking uh, for, for ways to help people, I guess, create a little bit of privacy or, or room for themselves in in an office environment uh, with like little sort of booths uh, or you know cozy sort of cubicles coming back, but but strangely they they seem to be firstly they feel quite commercial and, and like they belong in a rather sterile office. So despite seeing a lot of them, I'm also not seeing many people surrounding them. What, what I am seeing is is the more sort of domestic. Uh, environments like I touched on with FDB Mobler, uh, they, they seem to be more appealing for people. I think, you know, there's, there's probably something to be said about the fact that a lot of people work from home for a, for a long period over the last two years, and maybe they want some of those home comforts back in their office environment. But, I mean, you could also argue that, you know, those perhaps in the know have always understood the value of, you know, maybe having a, a, a desk made of actual timber rather than laminate, something nice and actually beautiful that you want to come in and work on. Um, and those are the sorts of products that I, I guess I've observed people crowding around the most. Nick, I would imagine you have a very busy day ahead considering that this is a, a, a huge fair, 600 brands there in an area the size of 22 football fields. Basing on what you have seen so far, can you tell us what our offices will look like in the future? I mean, I think it's going back towards those sorts of domestic environments. As I said, that's certainly going to be appealing. We're going to see a lot more, I guess, natural materials, timbers and stones. That's the direction I imagine it's going in based on what I've seen here. But, you know, the basic principles of good environments are still sort of key. I mean, natural light is going to be incredibly important, good warm light to work in. Uh, but also, uh, you know, having inviting plants in the outdoors into the into the office. I mean, I've seen plenty of sort of displays where you know uh, there's an emphasis on having greenery, even if that's just simply having a having a pot next to your chair or you know or, or a succulent on your desk. It, it sounds simple, it sounds basic, but those sorts of things that really lift us up are still going to be very important going forward. So I don't think the office is going to dramatically change, but I think we're just going to see a doubling down of, of spaces that are that are comfortable. Uh, and then you know you want to work in a comfortable environment. 
Sounds very good. Thank you very much. That was Monocle's designer, this uh, Nick Manis. Do enjoy Cologne now that you're there. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Steph Chungo. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time, but we will have much more news and analysis on today's edition of the Monocle Daily. It airs at 1800 London time, 10 a.m. in Los Angeles. I am Marcus Hippi. Goodbye and thanks for listening.